0: And MP3 downloads. And now, with this week's teaching, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you, everyone. I want to share tonight um, from Mark's Gospel in chapter 10. And it's a story that every one of us are somewhat familiar with, but I think many times we miss the point of it um it's in verse 17 as he was setting out as jesus was setting out on a journey a man ran up to him knelt before him began asking him good teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life and jesus said to him why do you call me good no one is good except god alone you know the commandments do not murder do not commit adultery do not steal Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess. Give it to the poor. You shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But at these words, his face fell. He went away, grieved, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is! to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Okay, I am not going to emphasize um, the, the story of that. I want to get to the words of Jesus, which I find uh, to be radical. I find this to be a pivot point in the words and ministry of Jesus when the disciples were brought to a new level, a new understanding of eternal life of the kingdom of God. And so let's quickly look at the story. Um, The Gospels put together, that is, if you take Matthew's account of this, then Mark, and then Luke, and put them together, you come up with the expression all of us know as the rich young ruler. Because this one says that it was a man, and the word in the Greek there is a very young man. For him to be a ruler meant that he was, uh, we would say, the pastor of the synagogue. He was the ruler of the synagogue. And that made him at least 30 years old. But to this group of people, it was a young man. But a young man of extreme piety, because if he had already attained to being a ruler in the synagogue, that placed him in a, a spiritual authority. The fact he was a rich young man, very wealthy, that's the emphasis of the story, to the Pharisee mind, uh, they believed that riches uh, indicated the blessing of God upon you. And so put all that together, here is a man who possibly is of a Pharisee-leaning because anyone in those days that was looked upon as spiritual would be a Pharisee. They were the zealots of spirituality. And so he appears to have the blessing of God upon him, owning many lands and wealth, and as the person of the synagogue, and the language he uses, he asks, what must I do that's a very important expression. What must I do? What performance must I bring to fruition? G- give me the formula. Give me the recipe. Give me the ultimate performance that I can do in order to come into life. Um, and Jesus then plays his game, if you could put it like that. that that's nasty. Let's say Jesus met him where he was. If you're talking about doing, then let's go back to the commandments that we all know. And he throws out uh, the commands that are contained in the Ten Commandments. And and the, the young chap's response was immediate. He said, oh, come on, it's as if he said, oh, please, please. He said, all oh, these I've kept from my youth up, that's no big deal. I'm looking for the ultimate performance. I'm looking for that which, which carries me beyond all my peers. I, th- what you've just said, the, these commands, that is my moral resume. Um, you've just uh, said to the world, that's my life, that's what I do, all those things, what I don't do. What I'm asking is what more can I do? That actually places him very possibly among the Pharisees because there was a group within the Pharisees and they were actually called the what can I do more people because they were forever telling you they had done everything that a man could do to please God their performance was to perfection, now what more can I do? And that was the continual question on their lips. And that would seem to be where this man was at. Do you get the picture? This, this very pious man, extremely religious, a leader in his field, and a man who says his moral resume is that he has kept and performed all of the Ten Commandments Now he wants the ultimate command. And Jesus cut right to the heart. You see, I said Jesus gave him the Ten Commandments. Well, he didn't, really. And and he left one out that is really the key to the whole issue. He left out the last commandment, which is, you shall not covet. And I find it interesting, actually, that uh, in, in translators, we, we have left that word covet, which is almost unknown in today's language. And talking to a class a little while ago, I said, what, what is covet? What does it mean? And one young chap said, It's what you put on your bed at night. Uh, and, and people are happy with that, you see, because it's the, the commandment that cuts to the heart. We really don't want to know what it means. You shall not covet means you must not even want to break the others. So really you've got nine commands and then the last one says, okay, if you have apparently kept all of the above, this last one says you mustn't even want to break. Ah, now that's a different matter, a big different matter. I have never murdered, one might say, but want to? You see what I mean? Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, where, where he goes to the commands and then says, but if your heart wants to break, then it's that, that's where life begins in your heart. And he, he left that out so the young chap could fall into it, you see, and say, that's my moral resume. I kept that. But when Jesus spoke of his wealth, he was speaking of where the man's heart was, trusted that's the whole point it's not that wealth is evil not at all it is that this man trusted in his wealth and he believed that because he was wealthy and secure within the material world then certainly he must be blessed of God and with covetousness and trusting in wealth or anything that we trust in um, there comes envy, I envy the man who has more than me, that's a matter of covetousness, you see, he's got more than me and I want what he's got, which is really, at its, it's stealing, but keeping it deep in your heart. Uh, greed, I, I want to pile up more than I ever need, which is hardly loving my neighbor as myself, you see. He, here is this man, and his resume is his mask, All this performance is the mask that says, (coughs) I am this so (coughs) pious, such a good man. Give me the ultimate commandment that I might do it. (laughs) that's, That's this fellow. And Jesus, having exposed his heart, then says the second thing, he called him to himself. He said, come and then follow me. Follow me. See where I will lead you. See where I am going because in me, this is what Jesus is saying essentially, you ask for life. Well, life is not a thing that you gain by performance. Jesus said, life is in me. So follow me. Me and you will find the life that you are asking for. Or you could say, abandon your trust in your wealth and your position and replace that trust in me, the only way to life. That's the story in a very small nutshell. And of course, we know that the young man was. Uh, it says his face fell. It was, uh, I mean, it cut to the heart and it also opened up something he'd never dreamed of before. His face now is fallen a deep. Um, what can I say? Because it was not only grief and sadness. It was the uh, frustration of having come to the one he looked upon as the ultimate teacher and he doesn't like what he's being given. And so his fallen face is that he is rejecting what Jesus is saying. for Jesus has come up with no new recipe. There is no new performance that pleases this fellow. No new performance that fits in with his ideas of what performance to God looks like. And so he rejects the words of Jesus. And, and and turns, walks away. Don't want to continue this conversation. I'm over. I'm done. I'm finished, you say, And just amazing, it's sort of in the margins, at least of what I'm saying now, but it's there. It says, Jesus, looking on this man, deeply loved him. I love that. I love that. That here is a person who is publicly... Physically, as well as mentally and spiritually, he is rejecting the words of Jesus. I don't want them. I don't like it. And he's turned around, given his back to Jesus, and he's walking away. But the love of God that Jesus is revealed among us continues to love that person. You don't buy God's love by always doing what is right god loves us because god is love now at that point jesus says and these are the words that i say are a pivot point they are life-changing they it, it, it is carrying the listening disciples to a level they have not yet seen or come to jesus said how hard it is. And he says two things. How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God what because he's trusting in his riches. But then he puts an addendum to that and says how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. That includes everybody. How hard it is. What does he mean by that? Well, the word hard is... Yes, that is what the word means in its original language, but it's the context of that word, in what that word means. I think it's interesting, might throw light on it. The word means um, how hard to please a person. It doesn't mean that it's incredibly difficult to enter the kingdom of God. It means that when you hear this good news of the kingdom, you're not pleased with it. This, this word that is of life, this word that is of freedom, is not received with great joy at the beginning. Because it totally upsets the gospel, you understand, turns our entire life on its head. And the first reaction to the gospel is, I don't think I like this. When I, when I would receive the gospel, I thought it would be something that would fit in to my reality of the meaning of life. It, it would be good news that would just, what, uh, tweak my life. You understand? I'm doing a jolly good job. I just need a little tweak. I, I need, I need a, a little more. Instead, the gospel comes, looks at my whole life, and tosses it out. And, and says that life is in another reality altogether. And therefore to receive the gospel it is to in fact reject what I've been calling life in order to receive real life. And, and, and people back off. You see, it's hard to please, Jesus said. And the word, actually the very makeup of the word in the original language It's speaking about food. You you put food on the table in front of people, they turn their nose up at it. Uh, And they said, I don't like that. I want something else. And and that's this word. It's hard to please people. They don't like what I put in front of them. They, they, They push away the plate of divine food that that's that's the exact meaning of the word i don't like it give me something else let's try again on this let me ask the same question and please i want another answer um and you know the people you've prepared that beautiful dish for them and you put it in front and they say i'm on a diet this doesn't fit my diet well i suppose this this fellow was on a religitarian diet um, it didn't fit all of his relig- religious standards. It didn't fit into his whole idea that one performs and does, that, that there's got to be some formula, there's got to be a recipe that will enable me to do the ultimate and final performance. Did you follow me, Uh it's amazing. We we come to scripture and and sort of push the plate away, because that doesn't fit everything I thought was truth. I I, I don't like this. Let, let's adjust it. Let, let's here we go. Let's see, <laughs> give me a new dish. The disciples, and this is really the key to the whole passage. The disciples, upon hearing that it says that they were astonished they were amazed now that's a very interesting word it's scattered through the gospels therefore it's an important word that when people heard jesus it often says they were astonished at his teaching they were astonished when they saw what they saw what does the word mean we we sort of know in english but it's very specific in the original language it's, it's well, amazement, yes, we, we understand that. But it, it contains within it this idea of fear, even terror. Yeah. You see, that they're looking at something, that they're hearing Jesus say something that completely leaves them speechless. Because you have to understand that they could relate to this young man, the disciples. They were really on the same page as, as this young man. It, it was, you know, in these days, if you were deciding to enter upon a life of great spirituality, you would become a Pharisee. That They were the standard. If you really want to get serious with God, and all those sort of phrases we use um, then, then you become a Pharisee. You you bend your neck to the yoke of the law, was the expression they used. And, and, and you enter this cult of extreme fervor for the law of God. And so when these disciples saw this young man and heard his moral resume, their reaction is, well, this man, you know, he... He, he's almost there, you see. And, and he's rich, and so in their minds, then he's blessed of God. And, and he's a ruler of the synagogue. He's the pastor, for goodness sake. And, and they look at this man. Well, he, he's, I mean, he's only minutes away before he's welcomed in as one of the disciples. Instead, he's going away. He can't take the words of Jesus. And they're listening to the words of Jesus, and and, and they're speechless. They're amazed, and it, it it's the idea, where, where do we go from here? you It's not only that Jesus has pulled the rug out from under the young man, but also he has done so to the listening disciples because they can relate to the young man. They think he's a very spiritual person. So what's the matter with Jesus? And if, if Jesus has just swept away this man's, performance in his position as as having nothing to do with receiving life, then the disciples are looking at each other, they say, Where do we go from here? Suddenly this pathway ahead of them uh, it's become the great unknown because all these keeping the commands and the performance and the religious formulas, that was all part of it in their mind. And now Jesus said, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. Where do we go from here? All, all, all of the known roads, you understand me? What, everything my ancestors taught me uh, as being the way to God, concerning the way of life, the way of acceptance, it suddenly collapsed. You, 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 you mean that doesn't count? You, you mean that life is not to be found where this young man is, is at? We admire his piety. We thought you, you, you would give him credit for that, you see. That they're sharing the young man's confusion, they're standing now on the edge of a precipice, and the road is caving in in front of them. No formulas, no recipes, no rules, no ultimate performance what What do you mean all all the familiar answers that we are. Uh, Happy with. They're suddenly null, void, and useless. And this panic grips them. They're amazed. I I don't know where to turn here. And and I'm afraid the unknown. Where are we going? Where is this going to lead us? You you understand that the panic of helplessness. You've just taken away all my crutches. You've just taken away my familiar road. Uh, And and they said, "Who who then? Who then can be saved?" (laughs) Good question who can be saved if you don't earn it if it's not a matter of desserts if it is not a matter of achieving performance then what's left I mean who then can be saved and Jesus continues this conversation emphasizing what he's saying and Then, in Mark's account, it says, and they were more astonished, which is another word in the Greek language. It means to be beside yourself. It means, actually, to be out of your mind. The the actually, if I be literal with it, it, means to be knocked out of your mind, knocked out of your senses, so that you're out of control. You you you're totally confused. There's a paralysis of mind takes hold of you. I don't know where I am. I, I I I I don't know how to answer this. I don't even know what to say. Who then can be saved? We're out of our mind. We cut. We've we got no file for this. We've got nowhere to put it, and we're. We're, we're we're getting afraid. I mean, come on, this is going too far. We're we're afraid of where this is going to lead to, huh? Do, do, do you do you relate to that? When you first hear the message of God's grace and and His love that we we thought we had filed away under L. And now discover this love is upsetting all our little world. Jesus looked at them. I I like the way Mark puts it. The words, uh, again, he looks straight at them. And you you know when you've asked a question, (laughs) that I, I mean, it's the biggest one you've ever asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus looking at them. And as if there's a pause here. And there's a smile flickering around his mouth. Who then can be saved? It's as if to say, you're not going to believe this, boys. He says, who then can be saved? (laughs) You want my answer? With men, it's impossible. You've confirmed our worst nightmares. <laughs> With men, it's impossible, impossible, impossible. I remember very vividly the day, decades ago, when I first got what was going on here. And I remember the feeling that I had found my ultimate rest. Jesus said, For a human being to try to do something in order to be saved, accepted, to participate in the life of God was impossible. And it was as if a great relief came over me. Impossible. Then that means all of my struggle and All of my tries are flushed down the toilet. It's impossible. So then let's snuggle down in this glorious bed of rest and know it's impossible. That drains away the struggle. It drains away all my plans of trying and all my search for that formula that's going to make me a man of God. Forget it. Dump it. It's over I rest in the fact that God says it's impossible for us to do, perform, achieve this salvation. And then he goes right on and says, but with God, all things are possible. With God, that means that this salvation from its beginning to its endless end is God's business, God's action, God's entrance into our lives. Yeah, it was the newest idea to the disciples. They hadn't heard this before. Um, Maybe Jesus had not said it so plainly before. Whatever, that's beside the point. The fact is, this was the newest idea. Radical Idea shocking, scandalous that I can do nothing, and all my struggles and all my keeping of pious rules that we made up in the back room, in order to be more spiritual. It's all uh, forget it. It's it's a waste of time. Forget it. This was a terrifying redefining to these disciples of salvation. And if this is the redefining of salvation, then I think we'd better look at what sin is, because our ideas of salvation arise from our ideas of what sin is. You see, sin is not primarily the breaking of rules, nor... um, do, do, does does one then overcome sin by keeping rules Did you understand it's not a matter of a list of good and evil and try and keep everything in the good column this is not a matter of morality you're getting shocked by the minute aren't you this is good you see because you're, you're relating to the disciples so it's got nothing to do with breaking rules any more than it is with keeping them So then it's not about reward and punishment. We were created to receive. Please hear that and write it deep in your heart. We were created to be receivers. Or another word, we we are those who derive our life from our Creator. Creator. And we derive, we receive by total gift, sheer grace. God gives. We don't twist His arm. That's the way He is. He created us to be the receivers who derive our true life from Him. And when we derive the very life of God, which is the love which flows between the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and I receive that, then that brings me into union. It brings me into a relationship with God, and that is what we were created for not created to stand before the judge who is going over a test to see if we've kept the rules no it's an entirely different situation we are the receivers of the love that flows between the father and son in the holy spirit and that holy spirit brings that into us And we are alive with the life of God and in relationship with God. That's what it's all about. So sin is the rejection of relationship. In order to pursue the lie of Satan that life is to be found in ourselves. And that we are the masters and originators of our life. Finding life in our flesh, in our mortality. I said that's the lie. And a lie is something that is not. And that which is not, is not life then. It is death. The lie says that you, by keeping your performances, by doing your works and finding your recipes and formulas, you can present yourself as good, acceptable to your ideas of God. It wouldn't be the true God, of course, but your mental concept of God that you have made an idol and you present to him what you now have determined is the way of life the fact is such a way of looking this lie mode presents God as angry with us for breaking the rules and therefore we have to double keep in order to placate him make him happy with us all a lie so sin is a broken relationship somebody um elizabeth i think you you wrote to me about this and quoted from first john that sin is lawlessness yeah sin is lawlessness and lawlessness doesn't begin with the Ten Commandments. Lawlessness begins in, in Genesis 3. It's the ultimate act of lawlessness in that I reject the very reason of my creation. I, I reject the very laws of life that are be found in a relationship with the Father, Son and Holy Spirit out of that broken relationship. That assumes the lie that I'm the center of my universe. There flows the breaking of all the commands of God. But but sin is in this breaking of relationship. Rejecting love. Misplaced trust. But it's a lie. The human cannot originate life. The initiative that connects us with God is not to be found in man. It is in the fact of God's love that will not stop loving us, but pursues us even in our rejection. We, we cannot even live the components of love. We cannot live loving our neighbor as ourselves, let alone as God loves us. We cannot produce the joy. We cannot produce the peace. We cannot produce the patience and the goodness and the gentleness. They all belong to God. And if I am going to produce them in life, it is because I'm in union with Him. We we, we don't buy these things with disciplined efforts so to put it another way I cannot get more love even though I know we hear people praying for that in churches give us more love Lord give us more love and it comes out in our our songs we want more 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 love more joy more peace well you can't have it I'm sorry because it's not an it love is person God is love the peace that we're talking about here is the peace of God. And it passes all human comprehension of what peace is. It's not just happiness, it's the joy of the Lord. You you understand? It's the fruit of the Spirit, not of you struggling and trying. And the human flesh, blinded by this lie, Believing I can produce something that connects me with life. Instead of recognizing I'm a deriving creature, I receive life. Blind, blind in a darkness. And when we hear this, that all our tries, all of our recipes are nothing, and I mean nothing, no thing. That's terrifying. We're amazed, we're astonished, we're horrified, we're terrified, we're knocked out of our senses. We spin around, where do we go from here? We've we've abandoned our life jacket. We've discovered the parachute on our back is a phony, and we've pulled the strings and nothing happens, and we're free-falling. Free-falling, that's terrifying. We, we, we've walked over the precipice into nothing. Huh. The truth is you've free fallen into the grace of God. You've free fallen right into the arms of God's love. This is, this is following Jesus who himself is the life. And following him through the cross, through resurrection, through his ascension, he carries us to the Father. Jesus is God doing the impossible. Jesus. I mean, how does God achieve this? He's the creator. So therefore he's well he's the creator, he's the upholder his word holds the whole of created existence together specifically the human now he enters into the human he takes to himself our human he gets inside his own creation he enters into creature and he enters into us where we are He touches our blindness and our darkness. But he, what can I say, transposes, would that be a good word? That love between the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit, that is life, is now transposed. The Holy Trinity now comes into the human. Can you get this? Jesus is the very love of God inside our human and, and living his life 100% as human with all our limitations and boundaries. And he brings that love into that. God has come inside human. And that turns a corner in the human race that we can never reverse it. God has entered into the human. We call him Jesus. And he carries that union to the ultimate in that he hands himself over to wicked men in his sufferings and death. And they hurl their hatred, their rage at God. They had God in their hands and they spit in his face. They have God in their hands and they scream crucify him. Which in modern understanding would be damn him to hell. They they crucified him which to that age and culture meant he is less than human. He's not even worth a decent death. Nail him to a cross. He's the criminal of criminals. It was humans who took their own sin their own finding of life in themselves, the madness, the insanity of the darkness, and they hurled it and they placed it upon Jesus. And the key phrase to all his sufferings is he answered them never a word. He never replied. What's he doing? 1 Peter 2.24 tells us what he was doing. It it says that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. Why, why, why? Because they were putting their sin upon him and he received it. He became sin for us. The Lord caused all our iniquities to meet upon him. Jesus becomes the human race. In the midst of its lie and darkness and brokenness. He got us right. I mean he couldn't have come more to the heart of us. And he's inside our corruption without being corrupt. He has come. He is God in our darkness. Refusing to be the darkness. Have you ever thought of this? that he has entered into the deepest darkness of each one of our hearts, that there's nothing we can hide from him, that there's nothing that we might be afraid he'll be shocked by. He knows us. He has come where the very origin of our sin is in that deepest heart where we believe this lie. Right there. And because Jesus is bringing to us the very love of the Holy Trinity there inside of man's brokenness and darkness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loves us and announces release from all sin. There the Father announces that he has personally lifted the sin, dismissed it, cancelled it, and raised Jesus from the dead. It's done. It's over. Your sin is gone as surely as Jesus resurrected. You are brought into relationship as surely as Jesus ascends to the Father. when that prodigal came home, he was a mess. He still had no idea of relationship. He still was trying to work out some performance between him and his father. He was as lost as the first day he left home. But he has come now to a point where the father can get into him, if I can put it that way. And the father runs with passion, with love, and embraces the boy. And that meant embracing his filth and the stench of the pigs. And he presses his lips into that dirty, filthy face and kisses him and kisses him, says the margin of your Bible repeatedly. He holds him. And the boy attempts to start talking about performance, what he's not done and what he wants to do. And the father is not listening and the son realizes it. Suddenly the son is confronted with love. Love that of course forgives. God doesn't have to beat anybody up in your place to to forgive you. No, God joins us in our darkness, flings his arms around us, kisses us all over. You see, the Father's idea of justice is that God's justice is to restore to normality. God's justice is to make everything right. And what was right for that father of the prodigal? What was right... The, the, the boy received a thousand lashes for what he did. No, that's ridiculous. All that the father wanted was to get his arms around the boy. All the father wanted was to kiss him and never stop. What the father wanted was to bring that boy into the feast and sit him down and say to the world, this is my son. Do you get this? It was the elder brother who wanted to have the boy punished For his sin, father's idea of justice was to receive the son home. So the boy, if the boy had received lashes and imprisonment for what he'd done, which was possible in those days, would the father have been satisfied? I ask you, shake some religious people, do you realize that would not have satisfied love? I, I I have friends who look at the cross and say justice was satisfied. Don't be daft. That's not God's justice. The cross was where love was satisfied, where love finally got inside the wretchedness, the blindness, the madness, the darkness of our rage against God. And he put his arms around us and kissed us and said, I love you. And I've got your sin. I've got it. And now, in this one act of obedience, the Father dismisses the sin. It's gone, finished, and you are brought with Christ into the heavenly places. God did the impossible. <clears throat> and, and and when Jesus ascended, when He stepped into the other half of the universe. Remember, he stepped there as human. He's there bringing us humans with him into relationship with the Father. And at that time, he gave the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit is the person of the new covenant. If you read in the Old Testament, as they prophesied this new covenant, it was the covenant of the Spirit. Ezekiel said, I'll put my Spirit within you, and he will cause you to walk in my ways. Or Jeremiah says, I will write my law upon your heart. It will no longer be an outside law. Joel said, I'll pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. The Holy Spirit, this is the day of the Spirit. And what is the Spirit? That's what has happened. This is where, if you follow Jesus, this is where it leads. This is where it leads through the gospel pathway, through the pathway of his sufferings, death and burial, and resurrection and ascension This is it, this is it, this is the new covenant and what happens? The Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside those disciples, the church, every one of us, and dwelling inside of us, everything, everything, everything has changed. The impossible is now the new possible of humans. But it's not by the formulas, it's not by the rules, it's by the very Spirit of Jesus the Spirit of the Father dwelling inside us and in that Spirit we know the Father and we are in union with Jesus which means no more rules no more commands no more broken relationship but now the personal presence of the love of God the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us love himself is inside of us being love. So this love that I in myself can never achieve, I receive the Holy Spirit, pours that love of God out within me, and He's my present inside, my my personal guide, director. Actually, there's one time in the New Testament where the word could be translated coach. The Holy Spirit is now within me, revealing. He's my explainer. He's my teacher. Explaining a relationship that is, is beyond words. That a relationship, the Father says through this Holy Spirit, you're my son, you're my daughter, sit down inside of Jesus, who's inside of me. Come and fellowship inside this love. It's the end of shame. Totally. Shame, what is it? I can't let you know what I've done. Well, I'm sorry, Jesus got behind your hands. Jesus got inside the deepest darkness secrets of the heart and he looked at you at your worst and most disgusting and said, I love you. I'll take that. I'll make it mine and I'll dismiss it. And the Father, having seen you at your worst in the darkness, puts his arms around you and kisses you all over. Did you get there's no more shame? How could there be? He knows the worst about me and loves me, celebrates me, declares me his child. There's no more guilt for Jesus himself became my sin and carried it away gone. As surely as Jesus rose from the dead, so surely my guilt is gone. I can look farther in the face without shame, without guilt. And the love of God poured out in the heart. I am empowered to begin a whole new kind of life. Newness of life, the Bible calls it where I live yet it's not I it's Christ through his Holy Spirit living in me and with the same relationship Jesus has to the Father the Spirit now is having that in me Christ is my life I live yet it's not I it's Christ who lives in me yes if I pursued the pathway of trying to make it happen, trying to perform, trying to somehow please God, to hear something like this leaves me amazed, leaves me amazed, astonished. And as I say, it carries in it this this terror, this fear that I've lost my bridge, I've lost, lost my parachute free fall into this gift free fall into this grace there's nothing you can do except say thank you for God has achieved it so I can do all things said Paul through Christ who strengthens me and that the amplified version um, puts that through Christ who um, it, it, the, the, word, the word is that he he has infused me with strength his strength is now infused into me and i live with the strength of another and he's just given a list of all the ups and downs and ins and outs joys and sadness triumphs and and ordinaries of life and he said whatever comes down the pike i can handle it for, for I'm not living as a mere human trying to find enough strength in my own mortal flesh. I can do all things through Christ who infuses me with his strength. I, I'm sufficient, it says, in Christ's sufficiency. Yeah. It, it, it changes our whole idea of life. I can never think of myself again as Malcolm. That that thinking was buried with Christ. I am Malcolm Christ in me. Uh, I I am Malcolm in Christ. He never thinks of himself just as Jesus. He thinks of himself as one with you and one with me. Did you realize... God has brought us into such a union. We are one with Him for the ages of ages. God has chosen. He refuses to be God without us. The the key word of the Old Testament is that phrase I will be their God, they shall be my people. It's not just He's God. It is God who has got inside of us put his arms around us and carried us into this relationship and it's all through Jesus. And again, the phrase that people have questioned me on when I have said that it's not really so much that we accept Jesus it's to wake up and realize he's accepted us. (laughs) At our very worst. He saw you in the worst situation. And put his arms around you. Huh. Think about that. Salvation is not trying to find enough faith. And enough whatever something. Say the right words. Do the right. I don't know. But so I can finally accept Jesus. The good news. Oh open our eyes to see. The good news. You wake up and realize. He accepted me. And. And. I yield to that. That's trust. That's faith. (laughs) Uh, And and so I I live in this. This is rest. This is living in this impossible that I could never achieve, but it's been achieved by the Father through Jesus and now is made a reality in me through the Holy Spirit. This new possible. You see, this Christian life is, I said, a relationship, and a relationship is talking, it's conversation. Actually, it is an exchange of stories. Relationship is that, as I relate to a person, they begin to see in me what I can hardly believe. They... they, They tell me my story through their eyes. And when I tell my story and reveal my secrets, I find I'm accepted, I'm loved. And a relationship takes place. When it says that we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord, you know that word confess. I'm sure you've heard me talk about it before. It crops up here and there all over the place. Confess. And we've got it in our head, you know, confess means, oh God, I'm a filthy sinner, and so on. No, that's not what it means. Confess, let me do it again. It's a Latin word. Con means with. Um, Fess, it means to say together with. Can you get that? Confess means to say together with. If I confess that Jesus is Lord, what, what? then it is if I will say together with God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord and has therefore completely, utterly achieved my being brought to the Father. Yeah, did you hear me? I say together with the Father what he believes and knows concerning Jesus. That he has achieved everything that he set out to do. And he has perfectly brought you and I into this relationship. And that's when the name Lord was bestowed upon him. So confessing is not just simply standing up in a meeting and saying words that the pastor puts in your mouth. It's an ongoing conversation. It never really quits. As I continually realize, uh, this is what the Father believes. Then I believe what the Father believes. I believe with His faith. Uh, that this is what the Father sees. Then I say Amen. That's what He sees. the Holy Spirit then enables me to see what the Father sees. It's, it's ongoing. Oh, it has a beginning, all right. But but let's let's realize it's a relationship. Again, something impossible for men to make happen can only be done and has been done and is being done by God the Father, through Jesus the Son, by the Holy Spirit working within you. So, this is, this is uh, there, there's a sense in which you never get over that amazement. I suppose we've been around religion so long it it takes forever to throw it off. But the idea that my life is not keeping commands. My life is responding to the Holy Spirit. It's it's not living by church textbook. It is the Holy Spirit walking me through the minefield of this life and producing in me this relationship with with the trinity and also putting the love of god in me and and giving me the strength and enablement to live that love and and that's not a textbook it's not a command it's moment by moment by moment see i i remember in ages past and with this i'm done um and it was back in the day when hippies do you remember the hippies um they came into my my church in brooklyn where we had discovered all of this but now it was being put into practice in in a church situation and and these hippies walked into the church and um they didn't wear shoes they had flowers in their hair long hair the men had and uh, i mean they were different And they had come to know Jesus very, very definitely, very definitely. They were very excited. And the original congregation that had been there and had not really seen the grace of God, not at this point anyway, and they immediately descended like vultures upon these brand new persons in christ and and says now you now you you've got to cut your hair you've got to go and put socks and shoes on got to become you know wear a business suit and, and they, they came to me confused they, they said well, what what is this these people are telling us that to be christians we've got to cut our hair and put on shoes and and so i you know you don't give a two-hour Bible study for that. I just sat them down. I said, look, the Holy Spirit has come to live within you. He's a real person. He really talks down in your deepest heart. I said, I want you to go home and ask the Holy Spirit what he thinks about your hair, what he thinks about your feet, and, and, and um, whatever he says to you, do it and come back in a week's time and we'll talk about it they went home, they came back in a week and a number of them had had their hair cut had shoes on others still had long hair no shoes and so I said okay let's talk I I, I said to you know why why did you cut your hair well the Holy Spirit really yeah the Holy Spirit said I I had to do that and so I, I, I did and the others said, We didn't feel anything. He said, the Holy Spirit said, It's okay. So I, I tried again and I said to those who had cut their hair, why, why did you have long hair in the first place? Why did you kick off your shoes? And they said, Very simply, very honestly, they, they, they said it's because it was a, a statement against society, it was a statement uh, against the rigidity and the the way of society and and so we just kicked it off and says we we abandon the rules of society we go in our own way i thought that's very interesting apparently that's what the holy spirit was after he's not after uh, blessing rebels he, he rather gently turns their hearts and, and and so if, if you wore long hair as a rebel the holy spirit said let's cut the hair see let's put on shoes no more rebellion and i turned to those who hadn't cut their hair and sat there the same as they had the week before i said why why do you have long hair and to the last one they said well we just kind of like it and and we don't like shoes and, and so I thought, there it is, you see. The Holy Spirit doesn't really give a fig about the length of your hair or whether you wear shoes or not. It's the why. And he dealt with the why. And when it was rebellion, they had to cut their hair from the Holy Spirit within. See, this could never be written as a church rule. Of course not. It's the Holy Spirit who said, you like long hair? Why not? And that was it. It, it, I mean, it turned the church upside down but that is what i'm talking about the holy spirit is the one who coaches you who leads you in life who teaches you to love and to love and to love to walk in love with the father and to walk in love with your fellow human beings this is life in the holy spirit not by rules not by performance it's living the impossible life father we thank you for this reality of life in Christ Jesus. And now let your blessing, you who are incredible, unlimited, almighty love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let your blessing of opened eyes, strength to live the newness of life, be ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.